Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions, wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoger, the Tolberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together we can help make our world at least a little bit better. Early in 2020, when the global pandemic was still gathering force, UNICEF published a document that was prophetic. And I quote, all children of all ages and in all countries are being affected in particular by the socioeconomic impacts and in some cases by mitigation measures that may inadvertently do more harm than good. This is a universal crisis and for some children, the impact will be lifelong. My guest today, Robert Jenkins, sits at the epicenter of this crisis. He is leading UNICEF's global education response to the pandemic and brings decades of experience and a global perspective to what might easily be the most important and longest lasting impact of COVID. Welcome, Robert. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Let's start at the meta level. I read a recent National Institute for Health study that looked at past pandemics and the impact on children. To make a long story short, the conclusion was that in the past, at least, the increase in what they called toxic stress prevented children from reaching their full development potential ever. Could that be happening now? Indeed, it could. And um, I'm hoping to be proven wrong, but I do fear we will look back on the disruption caused by the pandemic on children's education, which has been at unprecedented scale and, and length and duration. We will be looking back on this period as indeed something that will be with us for many years to come. Let's try to scale it. UNICEF, along with the World Bank and Johns Hopkins, recently launched a global tracker that measures the pandemic's impact. One of the numbers that leapt out at me was something apparently called the learning poverty rate, which was bad before this and seems to be getting worse every day. Can you somehow give us a sense of how big is the problem in terms of the globalness of it? the extent of it, the impact between developed and developing countries, and most particularly the impact on kids insofar as you can measure it after a year of, of, of this disaster? Well, I can. I can try and capture it, but it is something so big and so diverse, it's hard to capture um, in, a, in a summary form. But well, first, a headline figure, 1.6 billion children, global student body, 1.6 billion in students that were enrolled in, in school had their schooling disrupted at the height of the pandemic. Um, that's 92% of the globally enrolled student body. I mean, those of us who are in scenario planning and talking about responding to disruptions never would have put that type of figure on the table before this pandemic. So there isn't a community, there isn't a household, there isn't a country that um, has, has not had their um, education system and schooling affected. Um, so that was at the height, that was last May, June. We still have today um, over 30 countries that um, schools remain closed. We have um, about two thirds of the student population, close to a billion students that are still facing some form of disruption in their schooling. And as we all know, that's over a year into, into responding to this pandemic. So both just sheer numbers of children affected and for how long um, has meant that this disruption is unprecedented. How it's affecting each individual child really is something that is individualized by its nature. 
the pandemic, the disruption of the pandemic has put a spotlight on the disparities that exist in education. And indeed, the vulnerable children, marginalized children before the pandemic have been disproportionately impacted. So it's put a spotlight on those disparities. Hopefully, that will generate more energy and more resources and more attention to addressing those disparities. But um, without proactive partnerships that address the marginalization of children, bridge them back into schools, indeed, we may be uh, faced with this challenge for, for many months and years to come. Let's stay with the impact for a couple minutes. And as you just said, it is individualized. Every kid is different. Uh, every community, every school is different. Uh, but there is this question of, is, is a year of learning lost a year of learning lost? Uh, how do you pick up after it is the corollary to that? I know there has been some preliminary work done in Europe that looked at the Dutch schools uh, where they lost part of a school year. And if I read the study correctly, more or less said they learned nothing remotely while they were out of school on average for the Dutch cohort. Um, that sounds catastrophic to me because I would have thought that if anybody was going to have the infrastructure in place, it would be some a country like Holland. Uh, is it possible that all of the jury-rigged efforts to keep kids learning produce nothing? No, that's not the case. Um, meaning the counterfactual, like what would have, is it the same as if we had done nothing? I, I think is not the case and the data is not showing that. Indeed, on average, countries employed 3.9 different modalities to reach children with remote learning. So almost four on average, meaning the full range of high-tech digital learning solutions like world-class learning management systems by leveraging the television and broadcasting through radio and also low-tech, no-tech solutions like supporting teachers to deliver learning materials to homes and engaging in SMS technology. So the full range of um, tools were employed back, I'm talking about back March, April, May last year and have continued throughout. And I do feel it has had a positive impact um, around the world in reaching children. But again, I come back to if you were a marginalized, living in a marginalized home, say living in poverty or in a remote location with less connectivity, or you had less ability to negotiate access to the home device within your home, um, let's say one computer and only and only one child could use it at the given time. Um, so a whole bunch of different dynamics are at play. It could have affected your access to remote learning. UNICEF issued a report about three months ago that estimated about 460 million children had no access to remote learning at all when their schools were closed. That meant that either they were living in a community or a household in which remote learning despite what I've said on average, four different types, but they were still living in a community that it did not reach them, any of those services, or was provided as a service, but they didn't have the capacity, ability, resources to access it. They either didn't have the tool, the radio, TV, or computer, or again, they, didn't, they were increasingly marginalized at that time. Something we've been referring to as something I know you've heard of called they're living on the other side of the digital divide or now, if you were accessed for learning and if you're one of the children that was, it did not in any way um, substitute for face-to-face -face learning. But if it was of high quality, if it was interactive, if it did also was complemented by um, check-ins, by parents, by caregivers, by teachers themselves, um, and 
the quality of that remote learning has improved over time. Um, we did all collectively, governments, the UN agencies, UNICEF, parents, teachers, we did continue to do our best to reach children to mitigate the impact of school closures. But let me not make any sort of misunderstanding. There is no uh, sort of substitute for enabling children to attend school. Do we yet have any measures of the impact on kids of the past year and a half? So there's lots of different data is flowing in. Some of it is anecdotal. Some of it is um, increasingly quantitative by certain parts of countries, by certain countries, and some globally. Um, and, and it is worrying the levels of learning loss um, that, that children on average have experienced. It depends on the age. It, it depends on, again, their access to remote learning. Um, and it also will depend on the capacity of the school system when it reopens to enable children to catch up with the learning loss. But um, with the numbers of children that um, say the 214, as one indicator, 214 million children that have missed more than three quarters of in-person learning over the last year. So three quarters of the year, they've been out of school. Um, that is a very significant amount of time that will now require a proactiveness in, in um, when schools reopen to, to accelerate learning for children to catch up. But I do want to flag also a very important issue. Now, being from the education sector myself, of course, it's learning, 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 and working with ministries of education and schools to enable acceleration of learning. But schools provide far more uh, services than just teaching and learning, not saying not to minimize that by any means, but say uh, the easiest uh, example is school meals and uh, lunches. We have seen the impact um, that, again, disproportionate on marginalized and vulnerable children to not have access to the nutrition support, midday meals that schools provide. Also, psychosocial support and mental health and a sense of belonging, a sense of routine, interacting with your friends and peers, interacting with your teachers, these have also provided for more kind of comprehensive impact on children that need to be addressed. And we've been trying our best to address them now as schools are closed, but also as schools are reopening, how do we reach children with the full range of support that children need as they return back to school in order for them to be successful? One should never argue by anecdote, but certainly anecdotally, it appears that school systems, governments more generally, seem more focused on just getting the doors open on the schools and kids back in class than they are perhaps in remediating uh, some of the damage that you've just described, some of which we don't yet know. We know it probably happened, but it can't be measured. Is it enough just to get kids back in the classroom, or is there something extraordinary that ought to be done from your perspective to recognize how tough a year, year and a half, two years perhaps by the time this finally happens, these kids have had at a very critical moment in their development. So just the challenge of getting all children back in school, we have estimated that at least 24 million children are at risk of dropping out as a result of uh, the disruption caused by the pandemic. So first key goal of all of us collectively is bridging every child back to school. But how to do that is as the school doors open, they need to open very, very wide and a very wide bridge back into the school needs to be uh, built. And we need to proactively reach um, vulnerable children and overcome the barriers that they will face in returning to school. 
in previous school closures, like in West Africa, as a result of the Ebola pandemic, in which some countries' schools had closed six months, one country had closed for nine months, we saw the impact in the hundreds of thousands of children in those countries that did not return to school due to that prolonged school closure. So we need to very proactively ensure that all children bridge back, and that will require um, understanding the barriers that each one of those children faces, whether they're gender-related, whether they're uh, poverty-related, whether they're related to other responsibilities that now the child has taken on in their home or in their communities. They've entered the labor market. They've um, they've uh, There's been increase, evidence of increase in child marriage. So each one of those challenges needs to be addressed locally and children need to be bridged back. Now, as they bridge back into school, then to your, your point, um, accelerated learning programs, catching children where they are in their learning and enable them to continue uh, on their learning journey will be critical. And that will necessitate understanding where they are in their learning across all subject areas, depending on their age, and facilitating that catch up, often by abbreviating the curriculums and providing um, additional support to enable catch up. But I, I can't overstate the importance of looking at child comprehensively and holistically, enable them to have the mental and psychosocial support after such prolonged absence, um, bridging them back uh, in familiar, previously familiar ground of a school will necessitate proactively introducing them back into that routine but also um, providing nutritional support, a sense of safety. Um, so each and every child will definitely need to receive the full range of support that, that they now increasingly require if they're going to be successful back in school. If I were a betting man, I would bet that most countries, most education ministries, most school systems don't have the resources to take that kind of very thoughtful deeply articulated approach. Uh, they're desperately trying to turn the engine back on, worrying about air circulators, worrying about cleaning, worrying about plastic masks and, and PPE, et cetera. Uh, I'm sure people are giving thought to curricula, to social and mental support, to, as you've described, the known known of the impact on nutrition. Is there an awareness, not just an awareness, but are there resources to get this done globally? So I think there's good news and then there's challenging news. On the good news, I do feel that um, with the spotlight that's been shone on the importance of schools, the, the role that schools play in communities, it's kind of like you don't know what you, you, what you appreciate until you don't have it, I think has happened in schooling and happened in education. So parents... Uh, presidents and prime ministers, the whole um, teacher, everyone's, I, I think, recognize how central schools, what a central role schools play in their communities. And therefore, um, there's a lot of attention, a lot of resources, a lot of energy, a lot of interest in supporting the reopening schools and ensure schools are sufficiently uh, supported. And I think, again, a, a spotlight has been shone on disparities and a recognition of digital divide and, and unequal access and unequal levels of support. So I think that's also um, generated a lot of interest and a lot of attention and resource. That's the good news. The challenging news is we're in a very uh, difficult financial times and economic situation around the world. Economies have contracted. Um, 
understandably, governments are prioritizing uh, health expenditures and, um, and restarting the economy and social protection systems and social transfers. And so when you're trying to kind of square the circle of a budget at national level, particularly in low and middle income countries, a budget line that often then is taken to, uh, to fund these other important expenditures is from education. Now, of course, being from education, you're bound to expect I would say this, but I am very, very concerned that that would result in the short-term impact of not being able to sufficiently fund the reopening process at a time that's critically important that it does receive the resources required so that children receive the support. Children and teachers and principals and people working in the school system receive the support to enable an effective reopening and reaching every child, but also it will compromise the medium and long-term benefits of schooling um, for each and every child, but their respective communities and, and their countries. And I've seen this before. I've, I've had the privilege of serving in low-income countries and in fragile countries around the world with my time in UNICEF. And I have seen when countries are in crisis, unfortunately, they're often forced to make short-term decisions around public resources that have medium and long-term implications. And I do fear we, we're running the risk of that happening today. Oh, I don't think you overstate the case at all. Perhaps you understate it. My concern is that I watch governments around the world have become preoccupied with infrastructure, everybody's favorite buzzword at the moment, and even better, green infrastructure. And they're looking at billions, indeed trillions of dollars of expenditures across Europe and the United States, spending money like drunken sailors. And I rarely hear people talk about mediating, maybe remediating, the human impact of this thing, particularly on kids. How do we get people more afraid that their dearest resource, their children could be at long-term risk? So I also think we need to lead by success and, and highlight the positive examples of what's happening. I, I feel the, um, the disruption caused by the pandemic on education systems has also opened up um, new and very innovative approaches to learning that are now being incorporated back into the planning and reopening of the school systems. And um, we have a number of examples, like so uh, UNICEF partners closely with Microsoft We've developed what's called the Learning Passport. The Learning Passport is being rolled out in a number of different countries, um, very diverse contexts. And this Learning Passport was reaching children um, while schools were closed. It's now being introduced into the school systems as they return. It provides support to students learning. It provides support to teachers in delivering the curriculum. It's a very exciting, showing great promise. It's just one of many uh, new and innovative approaches to um, addressing what's actually been a long-standing challenge. See, the world was experiencing what we call the global learning crisis before the uh, disruption caused by the pandemic, with 53% of 10 to 14-year-olds in low- and middle-income countries not understanding a simple uh, paragraph. We're not able to read, basically. Over 50% of children in low- and middle-income countries, the vast majority of whom were in school and had been in school for a long time, like a number of years. So. Um, the education systems around the world were in need of uh, innovative approaches of disruption. 
this has presented an opportunity to leapfrog some of these innovative approaches to address a long-standing challenge. So I feel that will um, that still requires public resources, very much requires investments, but it can be pulled into the sector by success. So that's something also that I'm uh, very excited about. Um, are there other examples of things which are bubbling around that if if people of goodwill with some resources wanted to, we could have a real campaign to try to try to turn something which is a potential disaster into an opportunity? I don't think there's a single country now as a result of the disruption caused by the pandemic that hasn't been innovating in some way to provide remote learning, but also in the planning and the reopening of schools, the introducing um, new ways of learning. Now, the extent to which that's reaching every child, the quality of that innovation, of course, is very diverse and wide ranging. But the number of of actors that are coming into this space, global um, multinational companies, but also um, universities and UN agencies and non-governmental organizations that are, again, it's, I think, from an, once a reconfirmation, but a, a recommitment to change um, and, and innovate within the education space is, is incredible. And so with all this, uh, with all these sort of goodwill and all this commitment, translating that now on the ground is, is one of the key challenges. Translating also in a way that will affect the most marginalized children in the lowest income country or in the communities that are the most remote. That's, again, uh, our biggest challenge in, in UNICEF, but, but all of us collectively. How do we translate these innovations and world-class tools so that it reaches every child I think that would be the great equalizer. That would be the great enabler for every child to reach their full potential if that happens. Tons of examples of where indeed new innovations are being rolled into school systems. And um, now to document those, to make them evidence-based and ensure that they reach all children, that's where we're focusing on today. Do you know leaders that sound like these? Leaders, young or old, who are changing the world? who are not content with what is and are willing to work for what could be. If so, nominate them for the Talberg SNF Eliasson Global Leadership Prize at talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. Well, you're a UN official, so I can't ask you a political question. Um, But let me make an observation. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the next time the G7 convened they focused on education and and pointed out that if we get that wrong, none of the other stuff matters. Well, I mean, from being myself working in education, more conversations about education, the better. I think the global translating these global commitments and targets into tangible, practical improvements on the ground for your eight-year-old living in a remote village in, in a low-income country, or frankly, an eight-year-old living in each of our communities in high-income countries that, that it faces barriers to realize their potential in education would be, would be a game-changer for those children, be a game-changer for the communities in which they live and for the world. I'm energized and optimistic about the attention that education's now receiving. I realize it's 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 been incredibly challenging year for children and for education systems i'm i'm hopeful that this recognition of the importance that schools play in each individual child's life but that they play in communities and in societies more generally will 
generate the, the tangible benefits and actions required on the ground for, for children all over the world. And indeed, as you say, absolutely critical for um, each and every child, but for the long-term growth and sustainability of economies and societies and countries more broadly. I don't want to push on the optimism because right now we need the optimism, but I do want to ask the worst case. What keeps you up at night? So I would say the three challenges that are keeping me up at night right now. One is avoiding the 24 million children not returning to school, meaning ensuring that every single child returns back to school that were in school before. I would even, on this first challenge, I would even go even more ambitious, which is can we bridge children that were not in school before as schools reopen? Can we bridge them into school? We did have some interesting uh, evidence that showed that some children not in school when the schools closed started to access remote learning because the radio and television and in some cases SMS technologies that started to reach those children. They weren't in school before. Now they're learning. Can we bridge all children back in school, those who are in school and those who are out of school? That's one, a very real challenge. We risk the 24 million dropping out. Number Before two, you go on to the second challenge, can you give me a sense of where are those 24 plus million kids geographically? Do they tend to be concentrated? And if so, where? They tend to be concentrated in low-income countries and fragile countries and the poorest communities within countries. So on average, um, it's it's back to the percentage of children that had no access to, to remote learning was far higher in those living in poor households, poor communities, poor countries. Those are definitely our highest priority. There are other barriers that children uh, face. Adolescent girls we saw in West Africa as a result of the school closure of the Ebola faced particular risks, gender-based violence risks, and other uh, barriers that prevented them from returning to school. Um, so there's poverty, there's gender-related barriers. Children with disabilities face an increased risk of dropping out. And children from minority uh, backgrounds, those who are also children that have a mother tongue that's not offered in the school system, also face uh, challenges for returning. So proactively addressing those barriers, bridging every child back. First, Number two, if children come back into school and don't receive the support that they need in other parts of their lives that doesn't directly relate to learning. What I mean is if they, um, if they have a, a sense of fear, if they need um, a, a nutritional support, if they need um, support for their uh, mental health or psychosocial needs, uh, menstrual hygiene, full range of support. If you're seven or eight years old, you're not going to come and sit in your classroom if you're fear, fearful for your safety and being able to engage in the curriculum and learn. That's my second fear. How do we ensure each child receives the support for them to be successful in their learning? The third is specifically more related to my direct wheelhouse, the learning side. We need to ensure where I lose a lot of sleep especially over the medium long term, is that when all this is done and dusted and children are back in school, we have to remind ourselves we were experiencing a global learning crisis before. So if we do not seize this opportunity to introduce more modern, innovative ways of learning, then children will come back into and sit in the same uh, classrooms with the same delivery mechanisms that was causing a learning crisis prior. And so indeed, if years go by and we're challenged with the same levels of learning outcomes, like the 53% of, of 10-year-olds living in low and in, middle-income countries that were not able to read and write, then that is a great failure of all of ours. And that's also something that keeps me up at night. 
And not only a great failure, but a great failure with amazing both human, political, economic consequences that should con should concern everyone and should lead to concentrated efforts to do something about it. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that. Uh, the work you're doing at UNICEF uh, is fabulous. I know in some countries UNICEF isn't fully understood for the technical work that you do, um, but thank God for the technical work that you do. So thank you very much, Robert. I appreciate the conversation. And let's see if we can get some action to the rear wheels here. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening. Now it's your turn. Tell us what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergprize.org. Thanks again, and most importantly, don't forget to nominate a leader whose work deserves to be recognized and imitated. This podcast brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.